all ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. Killing a moose and taking the adrenal gland, which they call the little ball of fat above the kidney, and cutting it into slices and giving it to every one little slice to everyone in the tribe. And so that's, you know, that's an example of it became trendy at one point to move into the Arctic. And once it became trendy to move into the Arctic, the availability of foods was completely different. And they had to start from square one, figuring out what to eat. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker, One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 164 with nutrition expert Chris Masterjohn. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in today's episode, you can learn how your body economy budgets nutrients, why cod liver oil used to be the it superfood in the 1920s and 30s, and what is important about distinguishing between regular and fermented cod liver oil. Thanks, Rora. As you all know, every journey through Lyme disease is different, and a cookie-cutter approach never works. Just don't. It just doesn't. You need ninja skills. And that's why each week we bring you a new and interesting guest. We try to get them off the beaten path a little bit. We look for experts in their field, but we don't want to give you just the same old over and over again. And that's why we bring you guests like Chris Masterjohn, who's just done some pioneering work with the Weston Price Foundation about fat-soluble vitamins, and he is one of the world's experts. But again, you're not going to find him in a university somewhere. He's out plying his trade. Not anymore, (laughs) right? That's exactly right. He decided to strike out on his own, and I have so much respect for him. He's really one of a kind, has done very, very important work. You're going to love listening to him. Lyme disease is an international problem, and we have proof. We have listeners from Australia to Israel And from Vietnam to Pakistan. And let's sum that up with the top top 10. All right, here we go. Top 10 cities for the week. Coming in at number 10 is Elmhurst, Illinois. Number 9, New York, New York. Making its way back onto the list. Number 8 is San Francisco, California. Number 7, what is that? Pinguich, Utah. Thank you. Number six, your turn. Number six, Chicago, Illinois. Number five, Greenbird, Pennsylvania. Number four, Grover Beach, California. Number three, Hollywood, Florida. (laughs) Number two, Fishers, Indiana. And number one, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hello, Pittsburgh. You know there's a Hollywood, Maryland as well. Is there really? Yeah, down by St. Mary's where I went to school. No kidding. Yes. All right, Aurora, before we get carried away with... (laughs) Trivia. Anecdotes. Geographic <laughs> trivia. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about Chris Masterjohn? Chris Masterjohn earned his PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Connecticut in 2012. After working in academia from 2012 to 2016, he branched off. Now he is conducting independent research, developing his nutritional consulting practice, and helping people gain better health. 
He says on his website, quote, I have deep and personal experiences with the power of food, movement, and mindfulness to support health and well-being. I want to take what I've learned and pay it forward. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Chris Masterjohn. What I'm hearing about vitamin D is, so in the old days, the controversy was, well, you're going to take too much D, you're going to have hypercalcemia, you're going to have kidney stones, you're going to have major problems all over the place. And that didn't seem to be a major problem unless there was an industrial accident or somebody was taking crazy amounts of D. So that seemed to calm down. And now the critics are back with saying, well, we're only measuring... 25 hydroxy in the blood and it's not the active form and that it's a chicken and egg thing that the low blood levels may be indeed due to inflammation and not actual cause. And what, what are your current thoughts on that? Well, I think it's true, but I don't think it necessarily means that you don't supplement vitamin D when the 25 OHD is low. So what I like to do is I like to measure 25-OHD calcitriol, the active hormonal form, and parathyroid hormone all from the same blood draw because I think that actually tells you what's going on and why the 25-OHD is low if it's low. So if the 25-OHD is low, it could be because you're not getting enough vitamin D or it could be because it's being used up and if the calcitriol, which is what 25-OHD is turned into, is high, then that shows you right there that it's getting used up. But that doesn't necessarily mean, it doesn't necessarily tell you why it's getting used up. So it could be from inflammation because the immune system does use vitamin D for that purpose. It could also be from calcium deficiency because if you're deficient in calcium, then your body activates more vitamin D to put more pressure to absorb more calcium from the gut. So uh, you kind of have to look like look at it like a detective and the more things you measure the the cleaner of a picture you get and the more of the story that you understand. I think it's uh, I like the analogy of looking at a painting that someone's making. You can imagine someone's Maybe you're watching a painter paint a painting, and they go to a blank canvas, and you don't understand anything. Well, by the time that they paint a wheel, then you know they're painting some vehicle, but then they have to paint more before you understand whether it's a car or a truck. But then as they paint more and more, you realize that the car got into into a crash. And then as they paint more, you understand why the car got into a crash because someone else was driving on the wrong side of the road or something like that. So all of these things are static pieces of the picture, but what you understand when you see more of the picture is the story behind it. And we're doing the same thing when we look at blood markers. If we just take 25 OHD out, that's like the painter just painted this one corner of the painting and you know it's there, but you don't know the story behind it. If you measure the other things that are related to vitamin D metabolism, you actually understand what's going on. So in the, if I, if, in my little protocol, um, to me, if your parathyroid hormone or PTH is in the top half of the range, then that means that your body, you know, or higher than that, then that means that your body has judged your vitamin D calcium economy is inadequate because your parathyroid gland or glands more te- technically is your resident expert on your vitamin D status. And if your 25-HD is 25 nanograms per milliliter and your PTH is in the bottom half of the reference range, your parathyroid gland doesn't think you're vitamin D deficient. I'm going to listen to the parathyroid gland. And if uh, the reason I like to look at calcitriol is because the higher the calcitriol is, the more probable your deficiency is calcium rather than vitamin D. But then you look at diet and lifestyle analysis. If someone's not eating dairy products and they're not eating greens and they're not eating uh, bones and they're not taking calcium supplements, you know they're not getting enough calcium. And if someone's not going outside and they're not eating fatty fish and they're not eating pasture-raised egg yolks and they're not taking cod liver oil or a vitamin D supplement, you know they're not getting enough vitamin D. So you want to analyze the whole picture to see uh, what's going on there. And of course, looking at something like CRP 
uh, C-reactive protein as an index of inflammation could be an important way to see if if the vitamin D is getting depleted because of inflammation. Now, you used a very interesting word in the middle of that wonderful explanation, and that was your vitamin D economy. And that's, in the back of my mind, that makes so much sense because there's so many factors going on. It's much more like an economic model than we we tend to isolate a pathway in our mind or, or trying to understand or create a supplement or take a supplement for one problem. And the pathway is, is fairly easy to follow, but really there are these so many different factors here. And with the vitamin D and calcium, some of the – Ah, some of the people I've been reading are talking about really, well, the, the calcium, there's not really a calcium problem, problem. It's, we, there's enough calcium in most of our diets. Uh, we're getting plenty D from being out in the sun. Uh, but in your practice, are you finding people who are calcium deficient and respond to calcium supplementation or dietary changes? I think it's common. I mean, Sure, if you take someone who's drinking three glasses of milk a day and then they're supplementing with a gram of calcium on top of that, they're probably getting too much calcium. But there's plenty of people in modern society who don't drink three glasses of milk a day. I mean, vegans, paleo people, like there's huge swaths of health conscious communities who don't consume dairy products. And as soon as you place yourself in that category, you are way more likely to get a calcium deficiency because you're probably not adequately compensating for it with other foods. And in particular, there's this nonsense that you can get enough calcium from green vegetables. Sure, green vegetables can be a good source of calcium, but I don't think the RDA is wrong. I think most people do need about 1,200 milligrams of calcium a day, and you're not going to get 1,200 milligrams of calcium from green vegetables because if you do, you're if, if you want to focus on high bioavailability calcium, you're going to have to eat a lot of cruciferous vegetables, and you're probably going to wreck your thyroid gland if you get 1,200 milligrams of calcium from those sources. If you look at traditional diets, if you weren't consuming dairy products, you were probably consuming bones. And you know, So for the example, the traditional Inuit diet, they would dry and powder fish bones, and that was their calcium. Or you look at someone who, someone like the Hadza, who are hunter-gatherers in Africa, and they have a particular plant that they, I don't know how to pronounce it. It looks like baobab to me, uh, however you pronounce that. It's a plant food that is richer in calcium than milk. And uh, ethnographers say that they consider it a food group such that uh, this one plant that's really rich in calcium is like dairy as a food group in the United States. So I, I really believe that that pretty much no matter where you came from, you had a food group that was where you got your calcium. And I think it's really easy to fall into the category where you don't eat dairy products. And if you don't think dairy products are important, you dismiss the fact that you're not eating dairy products as having any meaningful impact on what you should do to get your calcium elsewhere. And those are the people who are calcium deficient. Interesting. You know, I find in my practice that people really don't know what to eat and they're attempting to find some idea on how to, what to guide them. So something like paleo comes along or they see a movie about, uh, uh, f uh knives, uh, forks over knives, something like that. And, and they, the romanticism of the idea really grasps them and then begins to inform what they're going to eat. But you mentioned the a traditional diet, uh, a couple of traditional diets there and diet wasn't something that 
we used to have to worry about. There, there probably weren't too many fads that came along in the, you know, the, the Middle Ages through a small town in Paris. You ate the way your parents ate and you ate what was available. And either your genetics allowed you to thrive or you didn't reproduce and they kind of selected you out of the picture. And then all of a sudden we've got this massive travel. We, there's the new world. Then we have uh, different ethnicities, marriage, marrying each other and producing offsprings with who, who knows what genetic, a whole new genetic mix. And then thrown into that, now we've abandoned traditional diets because of modern agriculture and advertising and TV dinners and that whole nine yards. And we're left with, what the hell am I supposed to eat? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's true. I okay. think that... I think diet has always been dynamic and all cultures have always been dynamic. If you look at the writings of Weston, would you, does your audience know who Weston Price is or should I introduce him? Let's introduce him just in case. Okay. So, so Weston Price was a pioneer in nutritional anthropology who traveled around the world during the 1920s and 30s. Uh, he was trying to find the causes of, of tooth decay by studying people who didn't have any, but he sort of accidentally became a nutritional anthropologist and wrote all, all kinds of stuff about the health and diets of, of traditional peoples. And one of the things that he found was that, that he put a very strong emphasis on was that there was accumulated wisdom in these groups. And, and his point was they didn't maintain their health by accident because of their surroundings. They maintained their health because they had cultural traditions about what to eat. And many of those traditions pointed them to foods that were relatively difficult for them to obtain, but they had the knowledge that they were important and the strength and care of character to obtain them. And often he documented knowledges, knowledge about nutritional deficiencies. So for example, in the Arctic, in, he studied uh, Canadian indi uh, natives indigenous to, uh, to sorry to Canada, and they had a tradition where they would prevent scurvy by killing a moose and taking the adrenal gland, which they called a little ball of fat above the kidney, and cutting it into slices and giving it to every one little slice to everyone in the tribe, and so. That's, you know, that's an example of it became trendy at one point to move into the Arctic. And once it became trendy to move into the Arctic, the availability of foods was completely different. And they had to start from square one figuring out what to eat. And of course, it happened gradually. But clearly, if they knew what scurvy was and they knew that it was prevented by eating the little ball of fat above the kidney and the moose – that's because they got a lot of scurvy when they migrated into an area where there were no plant foods available and they had to figure out a different way to get what the, what we now know was vitamin C. You could point to other big events like the agricultural revolution. There's a lot of there's a lot of evidence in the uh in in the archaeological record showing that many societies as they moved to grains as they began domesticating them had a lot of health problems that came as a result, and then later their health improved. And that's because that was a huge change to a different way of obtaining food thousands of years ago, and they didn't know enough to know that if you switch to domesticating grains and you eat 80 or 90% of your diet as one grain – you'll get all kinds of nutritional deficiencies and your teeth will rot and you won't grow tall enough and your bones will get fractured. And, and that's what we see in the skeletal remains. So by the time you get to the Middle Ages, you have groups that have inherited cultural wisdom that came from previous generations mistakes during times of major transition. So I think you have a you have a good point in the sense that the industrial revolution was another such transition and it was so impactful that it had problems of similar magnitude 
as the agricultural revolution or as migrating into a totally different region of the earth that had totally different food availability. But it that's not the first time that we had a major shift that led us to need to figure things out again. Fair point. But they didn't have TV and ideological <laughs> diets making net Netflix videos back then. So that's that is that's new. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, they did have marauding hordes, uh, I think, a little more often, right? You get the, the Genghis Khan characters coming through and uh, and bringing through new ideas forcefully. Yeah, I, I, I mean, ideas, ideas come in more gently now and much more quickly. So there are definitely things unique to our era, and, and the speed of information flow is is one of the chief chief among so talking about uh kind of this indigenous wisdom and let's tie that back into vitamin d okay so they're clearly cultures who lived in climates where there's not a lot of skin exposure because they're cold and there's not a, a lot of UV penetration in the winter months to begin with. So, so the, the Arctic would be a great example here. Absolutely. So what? So they de- so they developed a cultural tradition around consuming fish, and the group the groups in the Arctic that did best were the ones that were able to preserve fish year round, and among those. Uh, traditions were preserving the bones as a source of calcium and preserving the flesh as a source through drying as a source of vitamin D. Now, there's, there's certainly, it's certainly possible to allow your vitamin D intake to fluctuate seasonally in the year because your vitamin D is fat soluble, you build up body stores and it, and it can go up and down. But there's a threshold, and if you're in the Arctic where vitamin D is limiting, and they and on top of this, these cultural traditions, they also have genetic adaptations to conserve, uh, to conserve their skeleton, uh, and, and so the 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 Inuit have genetic adaptations that allow them to basically sacrifice their nervous system for the sake of their skeleton. During conditions of 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 uh, calcium shortage, huh. and so and so, usually if, for most people, if you were very very calcium deficient, you would develop rickets as the first problem, and you would only develop tetany, which is a neuro neuromuscular problem, if it became very severe. The Inuit are more likely to develop tetany first before they'll develop rickets. And that's probably an adaptation to how important it was to maintain a robust skeleton in an environment that was so physically harsh. But but anyway, the, so essentially the cultural, they'd get essentially they'd get seizures. I mean, that's not quite accurate, but they're just with their body, their uh, yeah, mental yeah. mentally shutting down, right? Yeah, uh, yes. Technique can involve uh, tremors, and they can progress into seizures. And there's also a form of hysteria known locally as piblotok where and i have no idea if that's pronounced right but <laughs> it would it would basically involve someone going nuts and become becoming completely manic and acting hysterical and then going into a deep sleep or coma for a few days and it's been very controversial what causes this but one hypothesis that I believe was put forward by a guy named Wallace in the 1970s that I found pretty convincing was that this was a form of, of tetany experienced by adults during times when calcium and vitamin D were very limiting. And so you can imagine that if you've gone into the Arctic, you are not... So first of all, the fact that they have genetic adaptations in this system means that they didn't always do it perfectly, right? If they had perfect cultural adaptations to the Arctic that allowed them to get year-round vitamin D and calcium, there never would have been selective pressure to to weed out the genetics that didn't do well in that environment under calcium deficiency. So 
the the fact that their genetics are so different from ours shows that there were many people who died or or who just vastly exceeded the ability of other people to reproduce over the course of that time based on how they could compete for reproductive success in an environment where they were frequently exposed to calcium and vitamin D deficiency. So what you so it must have been the case that the cultural adaptation occurred over a long period of time and was imperfect and the fa- the fact that these episodes of hysteria occur if they're truly due to hypocalcemia um basically show you that the current cultural adaptations even now are imperfect for that environment so it's a, the cultural adaptations are a way of mitigating the the difficulties of that environment and so are the gene- genetic adaptations um, but you know your success as a population is going to depend on how close are you to the to the sea what's your access to fish um, how overpopulated is it how po- abundant um, are is the animal life of the sea what are your abilities to preserve it and make it last the year and to the extent that you can do that that would be the determinant of the extent to which you are able to avoid in, any neurological or skeletal consequences of hypocalcemia across the year. Yeah, that really goes back to your point about the, being in an economy in the broadest sense of the word. That there's so many factors that go into it. Now, well, that's that's an that's an ecological economy, yeah. uh, but but what we were referring to before is kind of a microcosm of that, where in your body you have. Economic choices you're always making because the raw materials that you have to build up your body and maintain health are scarce, and so you know any any case where you have scarcity, you can apply the laws of economics to your body. Homeostasis in your body is just a way of your body making economic choices about how to allocate those resources when you don't have infinite amounts of uh, infinite availability of those resources. So calcium has a fixed limited supply in your body. Your body always has to make the choice. If your calcium level drops in your blood, do you let it drop or do you do something to increase it? If you do something to increase it, do you take it from your food or do you take it from your bones or do you try to conserve it at the level of the kidney to avoid peeing it out. And the body is always using these hormones and vitamin D to try to make those choices about how to best maintain the, the scarce supply of calcium through the body. And that that's an economy. Where does vitamin A come into this economy? So vitamin A does impact calcium metabolism, but it's not really part of the system of what we would call calcitropic hormones, meaning the parathyroid hormone, calcitriol. There's a couple other ones where their main purpose and the main reason they circulate in the blood is to control calcium levels. So vitamin A is not involved at that level, but there's a lot of there's a lot of things that do intersect with calcium where vitamin A does come into play, often cooperating with vitamin D. So one example of that is that vitamins A and, and actually this ties together with vitamin K as well, vitamins A and D are both needed to regulate the production of vitamin K-dependent proteins that control calcium metabolism. Uh, a great one to talk about is matrix glaprotein or MGP, and this is a protein that shuttles calcium into your bones and teeth and prevents it from depositing in your soft tissues such as your blood vessels where it could contribute to heart disease or your kidneys where it could contribute to kidney stones. And if you don't have vitamin A in your diet and you don't have vitamin D, you're not going to be able to make that protein. And if you don't have vitamin K, then you, then you're not going to be able to activate that protein. And so that's an example where vitamin A comes into play. Now is, let's talk about the, the balance between D and A and also your example, we're talking about the Inuit and the people around the Arctic that, 
probably in in their diet, not only are they taking – let's put it this way. There is no Rite Aid on the corner where they could go down and get a vitamin D3 supplement. So they couldn't get D3 on its own. They're getting it uh, along with other vitamins and nutrients. So now that we've got a vitamin D that you can take on your own, can you take too much D? And, you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, you're taking too much D and that's destroying your vitamin A. And, you know, for me as an acupuncturist, it comes more to mind, well, you may be interfering with the balance between D and A, and that may be important. But this idea that, you know, one vitamin is destroying another, it's, it's stretching my brain a little bit. So or, is there any truth to that or what's what's going on there? I don't think they're destroying one another, but they are used together. And so if you take vitamin D, you are almost certainly going to be mobilizing more vitamin A out of your body stores to use it for various purposes, and you are increasing the turnover of it. And if that's the case, then if you supplement with a lot of vitamin D in a background of a diet that doesn't have vitamin A in it, you could be taking yourself from having a borderline suboptimal level of vitamin A to a deficient level of vitamin A just by increasing the demand for it when you already have such limited supply. So with that, so what are the issues we run into with vitamin A? The one I'm most uh, fluent with or, or, or that comes to mind right off the tip of tip of my brain and the tongue is uh is eyesight right and beta carotene is good for your eyes and vitamin a is good for your eyes but what else is going on with vitamin a that if you start taking a bunch of d start get deficient where would that show up health-wise well beta carotene is only good for your eyes to the extent you're converting it to retinol because the form of the form of vitamin a that you use for vision it, there, there's two roles of vitamin A in vision. One is to support um, the actual. One is to support the actual generation of vision by by transferring the light that comes into your eye into the pictures and images in your brain that causes you to see things. That depends on retinal, which is a derivative of retinol, which is the form of vitamin A that either you eat as animal products or that you make from carotenoids. And then retinoic acid, another derivative of retinol, is what is needed to, to provide the mucus that lubricates your eye. And if you don't have that, you'll get dry eyes and you make your eyes more vulnerable to ulcerations and infections and things like that. Uh, so both of those are derivatives of retinol and Beta carotene for someone who's a good converter is going to be able to get both of those forms from it. But a lot of people simply for genetic reasons are bad at making that conversion and beta carotene is not going to be very good for their eyes. But in any case, the classical sign of vitamin A deficiency is hyperkeratosis. And what that means is that the in a, in a normal healthy skin layer, you'll have a very, very thin layer of dead skin at the top that's supposed to be there. And the reason the cells are dead is because they've overproduced this protein keratin that basically loads them up with the keratin, displaces everything else, and they die. And that uh, provides some uh, basically a, a protective layer. And in hyperkeratosis, you overproduce keratin. So instead of having one very thin layer at the top of your skin, you'll get a buildup of this dead tissue and you can there are various forms that it can take sometimes it looks like goosebumps or sometimes it's more broad but basically you get a buildup of dead skin that you could flake away or scratch away and although we associate that with the skin when we talk about it that actually happens to all of the epithelial tissues in your body and epithelial tissues are the tissues that line the outside of your body and line the outside of all of the surfaces of cavities inside your body. So your mouth and, and your gut and all that. Well, yeah, but also like your abdominal cavity where your, where all your organs are like the inside of that cavity, which okay. is, which is inside your body. Yep. Um, but that's the outside of the cavity inside your body. Like all those, all those tissues, like it, the outside of everything in your body is, 
covered in epithelial tissue. So all of those tissues can keratinize in severe vitamin A deficiency, and that's what actually drives the dryness of the eyes because as the cells that produce mucus in the eyes are lost, as you convert into covering the surface of the eye with keratinized tissue, that's what actually creates the dryness. You're replacing the natural uh, moist or wet or you know lubricated tissues yeah, yeah. with this dry keratinized tissue. Uh, so, so that's what's responsible for all the classical signs of vitamin A deficiency. And you know, classically, conventionally, we think of the first sign as night blindness going, and that's because if you and that's from losing the ability of vitamin A to contribute to vision. And if you imagine before we had artificial lighting, what did you need more, day vision or night vision? Well, day vision is when you procure your food. It's when you do everything active. You're largely sleeping at night or you're retiring to some safe environment where you're winding down for the evening. And so our our bodies are wired to, in when vitamin A is scarce, to conserve it for day vision. That's why night vision starts going first. Uh, but you know, I'm I'm pretty skeptical that you can use that as a general universal rule because I think there's a lot of different genetic profiles that make some people more vulnerable to losing vitamin A in their skin, some people more vulnerable to losing it in their eyes. And if you think more broadly, one of the one of the things where vitamin A comes into play that I think is really poorly appreciated right now is regulating circadian rhythm. So although we tend to know about vitamin A producing vision, it's doing the exact same thing in different cells that take the blue light in our environment and transmit that into a signal telling the brain that it's daytime. And so if you are missing vitamin A in those cells, your brain doesn't know when it's daytime or nighttime, and that makes it a lot harder to set a circadian rhythm where you're falling asleep at the same time every night and you're waking up in the morning at the same time every day. And if you can't prepare that circadian rhythm, your body can't optimize all of the nighttime functions to happen when you're sleeping and all of the daytime functions to happen when you're awake. And so you wind up getting poorer sleep and you wind up not being as alert during the day. Now, my suspicion is that for some people, that is more sensitive than night blindness, but no one's really done the studies that we'd need to determine that because no one's really appreciated that role until recently. So we don't have any studies where we experimentally make people vitamin A deficient and see whether their circadian goes before their night blindness, their night vision does. Um, but I think those are probably the big things. There's a lot of other things that vitamin A does, though. We were talking about supporting your your bone metabolism, soft tissue calcification defense before, and, and those are examples. And there's lots lots of other ones as well. Does vitamin A, like vitamin D, come into play with the immune system? Yep, that's definitely a good one. So there are studies. In fact, vitamin A became known as the anti-infective vitamin between 1920 and, and World War II. And that was why we had a basically a, a mass adoption of cod liver oil during that time. <laughs> you can there, there was basically a 20, I believe it was a 25-fold increase in cod liver oil imports over the course of that time. Oh my God, and that's massive. Ev- yeah, in the pre-World War II generation, everyone was taking cod liver oil. And if you look at the advertisements for cod liver oil back then, it all focused around mitigating the adverse effects of things like measles and mumps that we now have vaccines to. But the the advertisements for squib cod liver oil would say things like, you know, your child is likely to get this disease and all these bad things can come from it. But if your child takes cod liver oil, they're way less likely to get any of these negative consequences. And there were studies that supported that. They showed studies where... Um, where measles mortality could be cut down by 80 or 90% if people took cod liver oil after they got measles. And there were other studies showing that you could have a similar effect reducing the incidence of measles if people took cod liver oil before they got measles. 
And there were also some good studies, show, well, I mean, good for that era. Um, we could criticize their design always now, but there were also some fairly large trials showing that cod liver oil could cut the incidence of the common cold down by half or more. And American industry wanted everyone on cod liver oil because that meant that fewer people were going to take time off from work when they were sick and there was greater productivity because of it. So, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think if someone's getting sick all the time, that that could be one of the things you could point to as a possible increase, po possibly they're deficient or inadequate in vitamin A. Now, you mentioned this massive increase in domestic consumption of cod liver oil. That obviously, that trend then turned around again. Where are we getting our vitamin A these days? Well, I think we have two camps of people. There are, I think, across the board, everyone is getting less retinol from animal foods. And uh, if you're eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and you're a good converter of the carotenoids in those plant foods into retinol, then you're getting a lot of your vitamin A from red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables. Most people are also getting a substantial amount from eggs and dairy products, but the amount in eggs and dairy products is fairly low compared to the amount in liver or cod liver oil. So pretty much no one is getting even the RDA from liver, uh, excuse me, from eggs and, and milk alone. And so the unfortunate consequence of that is that some people aren't eating enough fruits and vegetables, and so they're not going to get carotenoids, even if they're good converters. But then many other people think that they're getting plenty of vitamin A from red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables, and they're not because they're not good at making that conversion. And those are the people that are most likely to run low in vitamin A. Do you have your uh, clients do a 23andMe to see if they are con good converters or not? How do you determine that? Yeah, I like I like I like to have people get 23andMe and run it through Strategene, which is Ben Lynch's third-party analysis. But I mean, you have to keep in mind that. So, in my Strategene report, if I add up all of the carotenoid conversion mutations that I have into how much they decrease my carotenoid conversion, I'd, it would they'd add up to negative 25 percent, which. <laughs> Which which either means that when I eat carotenoids, I I lose vitamin A from my body, right. or it means that when I eat liver, I convert the retinol to carotenoids. I'm not sure exactly what that would mean, <laughs> but but clearly they clearly, however, they compound with one another. It isn't to just simple addition. Right. So what that basically means is that we know that your carotenoid conversion really sucks if you have a bunch of these mutations, but we can't really quantify it. The only way we could quantify it is to give everyone a standardized test meal that has a known amount of beta carotene in a known context and compare them to the average for how much retinol pops up into their blood. And we're not I don't see that on the horizon at all as a basic screening test for anyone. So um so so we, I mean, I use those tests, but you have to kind of, you have to kind of know the limitations of them. And among those are 23andMe doesn't test for all of the known mutations. We don't know all the mutations. Every couple of years, there's a new study identifying a bunch of other mutations that we didn't know about, and we don't know what all the what the combined effects of all those mutations are. And then you also have to consider the fact that there's a lot of circumstantial health factors that are not genetic that decrease carotenoid conversion. So you could have someone who comes in clean and doesn't have those mutations, and their carotenoid conversion still sucks because they're hypothyroid or they have gut dysbiosis or they're deficient in other nutrients like zinc and iron and vitamin E that are needed to enhance the conversion or they're consuming things that decrease the conversion like polyunsaturated fatty acids from vegetable oils. There's just so many different factors that impact that that I really think everyone should try to get the RDA for retinol, uh, the RDA for vitamin A from retinol as a minimum insurance policy. One way to do that is to eat liver once a week. Another way to do that is to take a little bit of cod liver oil every day. 
Another way to do that is to supplement. But I really emphasize that with clients who have these mutations because it's just all the more likely a problem for them. But it's still just a wise insurance policy to get retinol in your diet because you never you never know how good you are as a converter except in retrospect when you say, why did I develop night blindness after years of consuming a lot of vegetables? Right. Now, you mentioned cod liver oil, and a few years ago, there was a big marketing war between the folks who were producing fermented cod liver oil and what was called virgin cod liver oil. Do you have an opinion, or is it just they're talking about different products, or is one better than another? Have you gotten there yet? Well, I think you correctly identified it as a marketing war. Um, that I mean, that was really in, entirely driven by warring companies in the background um, more than it was science. But anyway, um, look, I think for, I think if you look back in the old literature, there were studies that were done with unfermented cod liver oil in the 1920s and 30s and 40s that showed great results. But if you look back into the 1800s, they were reversing tuberculosis mortality with fermented cod liver oil. And so I, it's clear that both forms of cod liver oil do the trick. No one's ever done comparative trials around the efficacy. So everything that's said about that in the past literature, in the old literature, kind of has to be taken with a grain of salt. Some people favored one, some people favored the other, um, but they were both effective. And then now, look, there's fermented oil on the on the market, and there's unfermented oil. Try them and see what you do better on, and get rid of all the ideology. So I think that fermentation is it always has an upside and a downside. The upside is that you make things more digestible, and you create more nutrients, and you create other things that might be beneficial. The downside is you create other things that might be harmful, and some people don't tolerate well. And this is not just with cod liver oil, but this is with like sauerkraut and kimchi and cheese and things like that. There's a lot of people who just don't talk. One, so a class of compounds that you make during fermentation are called amines. Yes, and and these are derived from amino acids, but they become they become biologically active in ways that might constrict your blood vessels or affect your heartbeat or in the case of histamine give you all the symptoms of an allergic reaction or when it's in your gut as would be the 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 really strong example of this is scromboid scom scombroid poisoning from salmon that's been left out too long you can get simultaneous vomiting and diarrhea because there's so much histamine that you don't even absorb it into your body because your body just expels it right so that's wonderful yeah and so right so but i mean you don't get that from eating sauerkraut or fermented cod liver oil but some people were reporting that they were getting heart palpitations or rashes or other problems from the fermented cod liver oil. And I think a community of – and this started with a report from Kayla Daniel and then it kind of spread like wildfire on the internet. And it built around – got turned into these factions where there was the anti-fermented cod liver oil faction and they just ran with these – Obviously, most people were not getting these reactions from the fermented cod liver oil, or they would have gone out of business a long time ago. Right. And so they, they took what was probably an intolerance to fermentation products such as amines, which is a very uniquely individual thing, and they took that as if these people were the canaries in the coal mine for what was a fundamentally toxic product. And I think that's not just an uncharitable uh, interpretation but it's just a very unlikely interpretation. A far more likely interpretation is what I just said, which is when you have a fermented product, you have amines. Some people don't do well on amines. Some people, you know, some people can eat sauerkraut, but they can't drink wine. Some people can drink wine, but they can't eat cheese. Some people can't take fermented olive oil, and if you if that's you, don't take it. But I think part of the reason that it got blown up so big was because 
before there was an anti-fermented cod liver oil faction, there was a faction that had almost religious devotion to fermented cod liver oil. So there were a lot of people who got these reactions and kept taking the fermented cod liver oil because they had near religious devotion to its superiority that they never questioned. And that's probably, you know, I mean, it's just one, it's like a pendulum swinging from one side to the other. Had the perspective started with this is a good food who tolerate for people who tolerate it well and some people might not then the people who got rashes and heart palpitations from it would have stopped taking it and no one would have ever ran to the level of accusing the product of being fundamentally toxic so that's my opinion and i just think you know fermented great product unfermented great product, see what works for you and take the one that you feel best on and the one that best improves the measures of your health that you care about. Yeah, that's that's such good, solid advice. The old adage that one person's food is another's poison comes to mind. And it, it, most foods have some good effect. I mean, it, it, we can all kind of agree a Twinkie's not a food, but once you get out of that range of thing, out of Twinkies and Doritos into into real foods, it does come down to how does your body deal with it, and how does your body in this period of time deal with it too? Because something that may have nourished you. 10 years ago and you're picking back up again, your body may have changed and there might be different disease process going on or whatever going on that it may not work again. Um, and then the, the other thing I've heard described, maybe this came from you is the, the, the J curve phenomenon in taking, uh, any kind of new supplement that initially there's a benefit to it or, or a dietary change. Uh, and since we've been picking on vegans a little bit, I'll, I'll continue to do that, that they clean up their diet, they get some nutrients in, they're eating a bunch of vegetables where they, maybe before they really weren't. And so in the first year or the first three months or the first whatever it is period of time, they feel better. And then there's this gradual decline where the health starts to diminish and then eventually becomes a disease state, a nutri- nutrient deficiency disease state. And it's hard to put back or track back that, you know, three years ago I went vegan because you felt so great after it that this p- current state could possibly be connected in any way. Yeah, I mean, in my own experience, a great example of that is – when I was vegan, I was probably running iron deficient. And when I was recovering from veganism, I always felt better the more red meat that I had in my diet. But eventually that seemed to give diminishing returns. And eventually I started to feel worse when I had a lot of red meat in my diet. And it turned out that I have a genetic predisposition to hemochromatosis. Uh. And if I accumulate too much iron over time, my body doesn't regulate how much I'm absorbing from my food. So I can easily swing back the other end in the pendulum. But if I then decide that I'm not going to eat meat anymore for that reason, I'll probably fall back to where I was during <laughs> veganism. So I think, I think there's, there's two principles here. One is that your nutritional needs are different from mine. And the other is that my nutritional needs will be different than what they are now at some point. And so we're all different, but we're also all dynamic and, and always changing. So then this goes back, my last question here to to wrap up, this goes back to the ancestral wisdom. You know, again, given that we've got now uh, families where multiple traditions and coming through and maybe we've we've lost the traditions where where is that wisdom how where do you turn to sort out where to begin to experiment with well i think that you have to kind of distill out of the traditional wisdom some universally applicable rules and when you do that, you have to keep in mind that our knowledge of the traditional wisdom is very limited. So Weston Price, for example, studied traditional wisdom a lot, but he would have gotten a very different perspective had he stayed with one group for 10 years instead of spending 10 years traveling all over the world, spending a few months with each group, because you can't possibly learn everything that they know in a short amount of time. And that's, I mean, that's true across ethnographers where you're you're studying people at a particular time and place 
and you you may be studying a particular subgroup of a larger group where the traditions are variable. For example, you talk about the Maasai. The Maasai are they're not a group; they're a federation of groups. And so, you you stay with one of those groups of Maasai, and you get one sense of what a Maasai diet is. But you'll get other cultural traditions if you go elsewhere. So we're dealing with a, a very a very limited view of what traditional wisdom is. And we don't know if it's all true. The fact that they believed something doesn't make it true. It's just that many of the things that they believed were true or else they wouldn't be around anymore. And so you always have to distill what you can and determine what's most likely to be true and devise some general guidelines. But then you need to break out from just analyzing traditional diets and you need to incorporate science because – Science is very good at discovering new things. And so you situate that con- that science in the context of that traditional wisdom, and then you have to self-experiment because science is really slow, right? We can do a randomized controlled trial to get absolute certainty – well, not absolute, but to get 98% confidence in this particular diet does this particular thing. Well, in that context, right – Right. And then how many decades are you going to spend ferreting out all the different contextual changes that change that conclusion? And when are you going to know whether you behave like the mean in that study, right? Because every study is just reporting statistical means of how people responded. And by definition, some people fell above the mean and some people fell below the mean. Always. And some people yeah. didn't respond that way, right? right? So, So you're always acting with a larger degree of uncertainty. And so what I would do is say, look, I know that out of all these traditional groups, I know that none of them were thriving on the foods of modern commerce that have been stripped of all their nutrients, like white flour, white sugar, canned goods, uh, white rice. You could put a star in that and, and, and argue about it. But, but, no society was was thriving on the modern foods that have been depleted of all their nutrients. So you mostly cut those out, and you're not really risking much downside that maybe actually the nutrient depleted foods are going to do something good for you. It's a, <laughs> that's that's it's a small downside, right? So that's easy. Then you also we also know that. As w- this is what Price tried to do was to try to distill out from that wisdom some general rules. One of the general rules he made was all the groups were pursuing foods rich in fat-soluble vitamins. They didn't know about fat-soluble vitamins, but that's what he concluded by looking at what they were putting all their effort into obtaining. And he put that into four categories of foods. One was... Uh, w- uh, one was dairy products, one was eggs and organ meats, one was the animal life of the sea, so fish and shellfish, and, and the fourth was insects. And every group ate at least one of those categories and put and had cultural traditions around procuring them, and some ate more than one of those categories. Probably none of them ate all four. Um, but what he distilled from that was you need food sources of fat-soluble vitamins and you need to emphasize them. So that's where I get things like you should get the RDA for retinol, uh, the RDA for vitamin A as retinol from, for example, eating liver once a week. I think you can you can kind of build on that to say that it was always natural to eat nose to tail, and you have to be careful with that because actually it's not entirely true. So all these traditional cultures, yeah, they all ate the liver, but. You know, sometimes for some animals, they threw out certain parts, and some, you know, the co- traditions were complex, but it's generally true that you'll be better off if you consume the bones and you consume the organs alongside consuming the meat products instead of just eating skinless, boneless chicken breast. So I think, I think if you take those rules and you look at science, where science has shown us things like, People who eat a lot of fruits and vegetables are healthier. Science has shown us things like we figured out where potassium is. It's mostly in 
fruits and vegetables. We figured out where vitamin C is. It's mostly in fruits and vegetables. We figured out um, where calcium is. It's in dairy products, right? So um, I'm going to try to eat a diet that supplies all my vitamins and minerals. And from there, you just need to see what works for you. Some some people aren't going to digest lactose well. Some people are going to have a milk protein allergy. Some people, you know, aren't going to like eating shellfish. Some people are allergic to them. And you just have to t- tweak your diet and see how you respond and listen to your body and, you know, measure something that's important to you. Because if you're just kind of mindlessly going through life and not paying attention to how you respond, you're going to wind up in trouble that way. Fascinating. I really like the idea of, of having some measure where you can, a touchstone that you can go back to see, am, am I, am I doing well there? Um, for somebody it might be their blood pressure, for somebody else it might be their mood, uh, for somebody it might be their yep. weight or blood sugar, something like that. Yeah. So it's, it's brilliant. Yep. Yeah. We need something, uh, objective, uh, more or less objective to measure with that. Chris, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I really, really appreciate your insight and all the work you've put into, you know, this, this 45 minutes of knowledge that you've given us. There's, I know you've got a PhD and you've done incredible amounts of writing, uh, and, and original research and going through the literature. And if people are interested in what you're doing, what's the best way for them to follow you, to contact you, et cetera? Well, the home to all my content is chrismasterjohnphd.com. You can just Google Chris Masterjohn and that will come right up. I'm also at Chris Masterjohn on all my social media. So I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and YouTube. Just search my name with no space and it'll come right up. And I have a podcast, Mastering Nutrition. If I think the best way to listen to that is to get a podcast app on your smartphone and search for Mastering Nutrition or search for my name and subscribe to the podcast. But as with all my content, you can just go to chrismasterjohnphd.com, click on podcast, and you'll find it right there. So when in doubt, go to chrismasterjohnphd.com or Google me and you'll find what you're looking for. Thanks for making that easy. For I'm gonna, sure, man. I'm going to have to put a new uh, podcast in my rotation. This was a fabulous interview. <laughs> and I, I don't only say that because, you know, he talked a lot about the history of food and things like that. And I'm a total nerd about things like that. You're also a history major. Yeah, <laughs> but I loved especially what he said because it's, it's so true. Um, he said what he said about the his, the industrial revolution and how it fundamentally altered food in the same way that the agricultural revolution did 10,000 years ago. And that boggles my mind a little bit because humanity as a whole is still dealing with the <laughs> with switching over from like a like a hunter gatherer diet to a to a grain based diet and 10,000 years later we do we have a similar seismic shift technology is always 10 steps 100 steps 1000 steps 10,000 steps ahead of us and we catch up who would have thought 70 years ago that everybody would be going to the gym because nobody does physical labor anymore it's crazy, but here we are, right? We have to go to yoga classes. We have to do this stuff because we're not physically active enough in our day-to-day lives. It really is is remarkable. And that's just the way it is. There's no bemoaning it. I mean, cell phones are doing the same thing to our brains and either directly with the radio waves or kind of how it's training our brains to pay attention to little beeps and words and buzzes and things like that. We've all had that sensation where we feel the phone buzzing in our pant pocket when it's not there. I mean, it's <laughs> those those things have wired into our brain. So anyway, it's absolutely the case that technology moves forward and then we have to figure out how to clean up after it and adjust and stay healthy. Part of the yin-yang cycle of life there. I have a favor to ask you out there, those of you who are out there, 
please head on over to the iTunes store and leave a review. We'd really appreciate it, and it helps get the word out. When iTunes sees we have fans like you and you leave comments, it gives us better rankings in their search engine. So please head on over and leave a review. We love to read them too, Aurora and I do. For example, uh, Callie Huber messaged us on Facebook. We did send her a little swag, but she says, I've listened to every podcast you've had in under a month. As I clean houses daily, you're in my ear. Bless you and all the education you provide. I'm on this protocol and I have been thriving. Thanks, Callie. It's so great to hear from you. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, just send us an email, feedback at Lime Ninja Radio. And as we mentioned, we are on Facebook. You can find us there. Just look for Lime Ninja Radio. And of course, as I mentioned before, Going over to iTunes, leave yeah. a review. <laughs> <laughs> also, if you want to hear a little bit more from us during the week, um, we I put out uh, Ninja Nuggets, which are just a, a bunch of news and interesting things that I find related to the Lime world. She's underselling herself a little bit. Aurora spends all week scavenging all kinds of news sources to find the most interesting headlines in Lime news. And she puts them together and sends out once a week a really nice, concise summation of these headlines. And then if you find them interesting, you just click on it and you head on over and read the full story. And you're informed. And you're totally informed. <laughs> it's a great way to stay on top of what's going on out there in the Lime world without having to scour through hundreds of Facebook posts and Twitter feeds and all that other stuff that Aurora does. For example, check it out. Yeah, for example, this week the the big headline was a study from the Oxford University Press which said advances in serodiagnostic testing for Lyme disease are at hand. Which is a great big dramatic title for their study. Better testing's on its way. We've been saying this for a long time now, and it's starting to... Now Oxford is finally yes, saying it's it. it's right around the corner. <laughs> well, we're always ahead of Oxford. Yeah. All right. What else do we have here that we need to mention before we go? Uh, the line... Oh, how to sign up. Oh, that's right. Yeah, go on. just go on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com. There'll be a little pop-up, and you can fill in your email address, and then you'll get them. Terrific. Yep. All right. And as you long-time Lime Ninjas know, we wrap up each podcast with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know lactose is Lime Ninja intolerant? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.